According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Luke chapter 12. Continuing on in our episode here where we're examining the ten different emphases of this chapter. There's really a wealth of teaching in this chapter. And uh, last week we wrapped up the last details from emphasis number five, the poverty of riches. The fool that uh, did not realize that on this very night his soul was required. And um, he was busy tearing down his barns and building bigger barns and, and things of that nature. And uh, Jesus Christ called him a fool, that he was rich in the world, but he was not rich towards God. And so he is the, uh, the great example of the poverty of riches. We'll move on this morning to point eight in the outline, emphasis number six. And that emphasis is on worry. It seems like it's just kind of stuck. How about that? I'm not sure. I have not ever experienced that. Well, we'll see. We'll just start the slideshow and see if that starts. Huh? How's that sound? That would not be good if my laptop decides to stop running Libronics. Oh, at least we can do that. All right. Luke 12, 1 through 59, the whole chapter, is episode 13 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus. And we are ready now for main point eight. Worry. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that uh, distractions are set aside, that we are equipped to handle the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day and for the truth of Your Word. And Father, for the blessing of being here. We don't deserve it. Uh, We haven't earned it. It's a grace provision. And even the the Bible itself is a grace provision, Father. Who are we that You should reveal Your your mind, Your thinking, Your heart, Your purpose, uh, the love that You have for Your beloved Son? And You share that with us, Father. You invite us to uh, to become fellow lovers of Your Son. And It's just uh, an overwhelming thing sometimes, Father, when we consider how glorious your plan is and how gracious you are to share uh, to share such things with us. So, Father, uh, for this time now, um, as our nation continues to have freedom, as our uh, opportunities continue to be presented, help us to redeem each one for the glory of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for it is in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen. All right, emphasis number six is worry. There are a total of ten emphases in this uh, chapter, and we were making our way one by one through them, it seems. But number six is the emphasis on worry. This is one that we have uh, a background with because we've already covered much of it in the Sermon on the Mount. And so there is a strict parallel with uh, Luke 12, 22 through 34, and that strict parallel can be found in Matthew 6, 25 through 33. No, I'm good. Thank you. And uh, appreciate that. Boy, after that, what was it, last week or time before when had no coffee, folks are looking out for me. <laughs> appreciate that. Between my deacons and my mother, I think things are working out and other folks that step in. All right. I think the bulk of our material, though, from this morning is going to come from Luke 12. There are some unique expressions. Even if the content is the same, the vocabulary and the expressions uh, and some of the other nuances of the passage are unique to Luke in the way that he expresses it. It may reflect, of course, the background of the author, 
uh, in what he uh, what strikes him as as the Holy Spirit leads him to record these things. Also, it may reflect the fact that a couple of years has now gone by since Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount and a uh, developing maturity in his own ministry and some of the ways that he finds to express the things that he expresses. So you might pick up on that as well. But uh, right on the heels of the message on covetousness, uh, in describing this man that was all worked up over the things of this world, comes another open-door opportunity to deliver this message. And so he does. And so he says to his disciples in verse 22, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Do not worry about your soul. Psuche. All right? There's a lot of different terms for life, including bios, which is temporal life, and including uh, psuche for soul, or zoe for uh, God's kind of life, the eternal life that we have in Christ. Throughout this passage, the application is the psuche, is the soul, realizing that uh, the soul is a synonym for life. If a ship goes down and 300 souls are lost, or 300 lives are lost, we use the same terminology uh, with respect to uh, the soul. In fact, that's one of the definitions of death. Death is when the soul departs the body. And that's something that doctors can't figure out. They talk about clinical death or brain death or different aspects of death while they try to keep the heart pumping and organs functioning and things like that. Um, They can do brain scans, but they uh, have not yet developed a soul scan as far as as far as that goes. All right, so uh, do not worry about your life. Literally, stop worrying about your life. The construction here indicates that this was an ongoing struggle for some of the disciples, and the imperative to stop worrying is uh, expressed in that way. As to what you will eat, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour or cubit, a single uh, square inch, you know, to his lifespan? You can't. It is what it is. It is what was set before the foundation of the world. And worry can't add it one tiny little bit. All right. I believe permissive will can extend it as per the uh, promise to honor your father and mother. And I believe that there is an extension granted to the X number of days by virtue of obedience there. But that's another study. All right, where did I leave off? Verse 25, then verse 26. If then, and you cannot, you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. And you think about a lily. You think about a a little flower, right, growing in the dirt. Why is that glorious? Okay? I mean, even if you... I'm not particularly botanical or, you know, flowers are nice. they, They look nice. But I'm not dazzled by them, right? I mean, I can take them and leave them and so forth. Maybe it's just because, is that a guy thing versus a girl thing? All right. But I mean, even so, I mean, even if it's the most beautiful, attractive flower arrangement you've ever seen in your life, it's still just flowers, right? Anyway. I'm going to move past that. I, this is, no, no. This is the week where the we're, we're anticipating this wonderful ladies' retreat this coming weekend, and we're just going to promote that, support that, and yeah, yeah. Last thing we want to do is, 48 hours ahead of the retreat, is launch into some kind of battle of the sexes between the, and the congregation. All right, then. Stick to the text. Stick to the text. Realize the clothing of a lily is described here. Again, verse 27, consider the lilies, they neither grow, or how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. And when you think about a lily or any flower, how are they clothed, how are they dressed, and why, in God's divine viewpoint, standard of looking at things, why is it considered more glorious than any, uh, you know, the, the richest man that ever lived in the history of the world, and how he dressed? 
Well, we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit. The application then comes in in verse 28. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and uh, what you will drink and do not keep on worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows that you need these things. So seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Two more verses. Uh, verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your heart is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right. This is the full text of what we're dealing with, and we'll see what it takes to go through here. First of all, Food and clothing, they are needed, <laughs> all right? They're necessities. We're not mocking them. We're not diminishing them. That's not what this passage does. Food and clothing are the two necessities for contentment, according to 1 Timothy 6.8. We studied that a few weeks back, a couple weeks ago, uh, on Sunday morning. Food and clothing are the two necessities for contentment. Whether you're rich, poor, in between... Uh, trying to get rich or trying to get richer, whatever else is going on, food and clothing are the two items for contentment. But we don't have to be anxious about attaining them. That's the principle. They're necessary. That uh, when you identify God's grace provision, you are properly oriented to uh, temporal life circumstances. And we do not have to be anxious. Key word there about attaining them. I think you're familiar with the passage in 1 Timothy 6.8. And uh, a couple of different stretches through 1 Timothy 6 where money gets addressed. This is in the earlier one. Remember, it's the uh, doctrinal perverts, the false teachers that pervert doctrine for financial gain. They're of uh, constant friction. They're the uh, depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They figure if they work the religion racket well enough, they're going to they're gonna milk the, the, the flock and they'll, they'll do very well. And, and our generation can testify to that. Uh, and Paul goes on to say, but godliness actually is a means of great gain, eternal gain. You talk about a return on your investment. This is one that's going to last for all eternity when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we can take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. So these are the items necessary for contentment. And yet, what we read back in Luke 12 is that we don't have to be anxious about attaining them. We don't have to be anxious. Verses 22 and 23. The word for anxious here is the same word that you have in Philippians that tells you to not be anxious. All right. So if you're anxious, you're disobeying the word of God. The, word, the verb is merimanao, M-E-R-I-M-N-A-O, merimanao. And manao is a thinking word, uh, calling something to your mind. Uh, we have a word like memnonics that we use that uh, refers to devices, uh, mental devices you use to try to remember things. And I'm not sure why they selected such a difficult word to remember, like memnonics, to represent a word that helps you remember things. To me, it's kind of defeating the purpose. But Mary, M-E-R-I, the mer part of Merimanao, is a division. It's a schism. It's a, uh, the mer it's like a muros, a part, or a division. And so what you have is a divided mind. You have a mind that's going one way and going another way and going another way because your mind's divided and uh, you can't keep it uh, headed a single direction. You're anxious. Okay? Is that vivid enough? It, it should paint a pretty good word picture when your mind is, is headed a hundred different directions. And so, as you might expect, the frequency of this term uh, repeatedly throughout Matthew chapter 6 Verse 25, 27, 28, 31, and twice in verse 34. And that's the parallel passage to our text uh, that we're looking at here today. 
Uh, likewise, in Matthew chapter 10, it comes back again in verse 19. Matthew 10 is where he's selecting his 12 disciples and he's sending them out two by two. And when you're uh, training for the ministry and when you're first starting your ministry, uh, uh, obviously anxiety, being anxious is something you want to uh, avoid. And uh, as what Cliff and Terry can testify to, they're praying over placement and where the Lord's going to take them and what the Lord's going to do with them. Uh, the last thing they want to do is be anxious. The Lord will be faithful. He'll open the door. He'll make it obvious. Likewise, um, over in Luke, Luke 10, 41, a couple chapters back, we um, looked at this already, and this is the uh, the famous Mary and Martha episode, right? And uh, Martha's all frazzled. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are merimanaoing. You are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So, real good illustration over what this frazzled, worrying, anxiety is all about. When you stop to think it through, it makes no sense. When you stop and actually apply doctrine to the situation, you say, why am I worried about it? It's not my department. God's going to take care of that. And you choose actively to not dwell on what you're commanded to not dwell on. You choose. You make the choice. Because Philippians says, do not be anxious about even one thing. So when you choose to be anxious and you choose to not make it a prayer item, then you're you're committing a sin. You're you're defying the word of God. You're also committing a sin of omission because that item you're anxious about uh, is not featured in Philippians four for the things that you're supposed to let your mind dwell on. We'll talk about that in a moment here, too. But Martha may uh, be the good illustration for you on that. And uh, so you have it there in Luke chapter 10 and verse 41. Oops, don't do that. Stop. There we go. Technology will cooperate. We are the human beings in God's image. All right. Verse chapter 12. Look at all those verses. Verse 11, verse 22, 25, 26. Of course, uh, 22, 25, 26 are all in this section we're dealing with here this morning on worry. Uh, but we already had it up in verse 11 the Merimanao term, when um, Jesus told them, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry, uh, do not Merimanao about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. This was the encouragement we found that when God places you in a martyrdom circumstance, he put you there for his purpose and he will use you for his glory. That's why he has you there and God will speak through you. And you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to be anxious about it. He places you on that scene at that occasion, and he will, uh, you will be the tool in his hands. So uh, relax, stay in fellowship, enjoy the ride, and, and actually appreciate what it is that he is doing. See? Anyway, that's the application on it there. Paul makes use of it several times in, in 1 Corinthians and back when we taught 1 Corinthians, the marriage chapter of chapter 7 describes the fact that married life is full of distractions. Okay, it doesn't say that it's carnal, it just says that's what it is. And, uh, and it's supposed to be. 1 Corinthians 7, and uh, verse 32, One who is married is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And, of course, the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife and his interests are divided. All right. It's just the way it is. And it's legitimate. You do have family concerns. You have marital concerns. You have uh, career concerns. And uh, obviously, every man has to figure out where his uh, priorities are and what comes first and what uh, what happens in that. 1 Corinthians 12.25 for concern or worry or anxious. It's an interesting use because it, it takes what's normally a, um, 
a carnal term and actually finds a positive application for it so that there may be no more division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. Interesting application on that. Finally, the two in Philippians are the ones we ought to have on our refrigerators or on our bathroom mirrors when we're shaving, things like that. Philippians 2.20 and Philippians 4.6. Philippians 2.20 to me is the verse that gives us our um, graduation requirements for the training ministry. You see, when you draw up a, a syllabus and a, and a, a uh, catalog of courses for your school and, and uh, what it is that pastors have to learn, what it is that evangelists have to learn, and teachers and helpers and givers, all 11 spiritual gifts. This is really an interesting testimony when it comes to Timothy and his uh, suitability for the pastorate. He tells uh, the Philippians here, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Concerned for your welfare. And this is Merimanao, but the, the modifier genuinely attached to it takes it out of a carnal application and shows its legitimate place here. Um, Notice in verse 21, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth. And Timothy was suited. He was ready for ministry. And Paul was able to use him in a variety of places. Not just Philippi, but Thessalonica and Berea and other places where he sent him, Ephesus and so forth. And um, interesting thing, because when you study Paul's ministry, he had Titus with him at this point. He had Luke with him. He had Aristarchus. Other men were training with him. And yet, uh, they weren't ready. He couldn't send them out. And uh, the uh, issue wasn't how much Greek he had or how much Hebrew he had or his systematic theology or his, you know, his uh, academic credentials. See? Anyway, his proven worth. Genuinely concerned for your welfare. Philippians 4.6 Miramanao not even one thing. Do not be anxious for... See, the thing is, we, we get stuck because in English, a double negative cancels itself, right? And it's unfortunate because in Greek, the uh, you can double negative, triple negative, quadruple negative, and all you're doing is just intensifying and intensifying and intensifying and driving that point home. So stop being anxious for not even one thing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So whatever it is, if you happen to notice that you've got a, a button, right? An anxiety button, okay? And maybe, you know, your, your, your best friend knows how to push it or your, some, your coworker knows how to push it, your enemy knows how to push it, your spouse knows how to push it, whoever knows how to push it, Right? Realize what it is. It's not an anxiety trigger. It's a prayer trigger. Because the nothing that is the uh, scope of anxiety is directly parallel to the everything that comes into the scope of prayer. You see that in verse 6? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. And those are direct parallels. Because if you've got everything over here and nothing over here, <laughs> what do you got? Everything over here, which is a prayer item. See, problem is, is when you take something away from the prayer category, you put it over here in the anxiety category. What have you just done? You just disobeyed Philippians 4.6. Not only did you disobey Philippians 4.6, but you also disobeyed Philippians 4.8, two verses down. Because whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Whatever your anxiety trigger is, doesn't qualify to be dwelt on as per verse 8. So you're disobeying verse 6, you're disobeying verse 8. And uh, believers just scratch their heads and figure out why, why, uh, why don't I have the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension? See, right there in the middle in verse 7. 
where the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, yeah, everybody wants that. But when you're disobeying verse 6 and verse 8 on either side of it, why do you expect verse 7 is going to have a reality in your, in your soul? It's not. It's not. Verse 7 is a consequence of, of being obedient to verse 6. All right, so food and clothing are the two necessities for contentment, but we don't have to be anxious about attaining them. God knows you need them. God will provide. He's been providing. He will continue to provide through one way or another. It may not be the way you think, and it may not be the way you would like. It may not be the vehicle you would have chosen, but He does provide. He is Jehovah Jireh, and that becomes... Important. Ravens and lilies are the Lord's illustrations. Ravens and lilies are the Lord's illustrations. And this is where uh, I'm not going to go a whole lot into detail because uh, Matthew 6, we've already taught this. Matthew didn't use the word raven. Matthew used a more general term for bird, but same context and the same application, really. The... um, Just recognize, what what are the ravens not doing? They're not sowing, they're not reaping, they have no storeroom, they have no barn. Okay, And that comes right on the heels of the story right before it with the the rich fool and tearing down his barns and building bigger barns. Uh, Ravens don't function like people. Is that a shock? Okay, Kind of got to shout that from the rooftop anymore with the animal rights wackos we have trying to ascribe human traits to animal creatures um but so they don't uh they don't sow they don't reap they don't uh work in terms of uh a paycheck and a salary and and w-2 withholdings or anything like that they don't function like people they function like animals they are a lower realm of creation than humanity and yet god provides for them God does not feel that they are beneath His notice, even though they're beneath humanity. Now, if God observes and cares for and provides for at the lower level, does it not stand a reason that He's going to take care of us as well? Yes, it does. That's the point of this. That's the, uh, the logic of this passage. Because we are more valuable. God feeds them how much more valuable you are than the birds. Why does God keep the birds alive? What's the purpose for the birds to live? So that they can make more baby birds and they can do what birds do and they can be food for the other animals. They have their place in the food chain. All right. In any event, you know, these these protesters over the, the treatment of chickens... And how chickens are raised for food. They're raised for food. They're raised so that they can get fat and they can die. And then we can get fat. (laughs) All right. That's why we have chickens. So, anyway, there's a lot. But I think the idea about being dressed. You ever think about flowers being dressed? Every petal, every leaf, every color, everything. And God is dressing the flowers, see, with an artist's eye and an artist's touch that I can't appreciate. I just, I can't. But you think about, like my daughter, when she draws and she gets this easel out and she's drawing and she's choosing. She's choosing what she's going to draw. And, and, and uh, you know, and, and then what's it going to be like and how tall is it? You know, whatever it's going to be. And she makes all those choices. That's the creativeness that God gives to each one of us. And so she draws characters. She draws people. She draws figures. She draws um, fairy princesses and, and things. If it was up to me, I'd have dragons devouring the fairy prince. And, you know, knights with armor and swords coming to slay the dragon. That's the kind of stuff I would draw, but I can't draw. And says, I'm not the one drawing. I don't choose what goes in the picture. That's what I'm trying to say. When you're the creator, you choose what it's going to be. And in the case of 
work of art. The artist is the one creating what it is he's drawing or painting or sketching or what have you. The musician, uh, if you're writing music and you're deciding what lyrics to put in there, what music to put, and you're making all those choices. It's the creativity God blesses us with. And so God, in His creativity as the Creator, when He creates the flowers and He creates all the beauty of, of, uh, of these things, it's just amazing. And He is impressed with what He does, even if we don't have the capacity to be impressed with what He's doing. Well, <laughs> okay, I'll work on it, all right? But I kind of think it's God's fault anyway. He didn't make me more appreciative of... <laughs> All right. It's just not the way he made me. Anyway, birds and lilies, great illustrations, great illustrations. God's going to feed us. He will take care of us. All right? We're not going to starve. Provision is there. And it's uh it is what it is, and we're thankful for that. Food and drink are not the search objects. Food and drink are not the search objects. Do not seek them. What are you seeking? The verb is zeteo, Z-E-T-E-O, number 2212. And we're not seeking food. We're not seeking drink. We need them. But when we work and when we, uh, you know, you have a job or whatever you do for income and... and um, and so you, you put food on the table, realize that's not the goal. You're not living, making an income for the end result of eating. You eat along the way because there's another end result. Ultimately speaking, for a believer anyway, the end result is to glorify Jesus Christ. And so daily life from where you live and the clothes you wear and the job you have and the food you eat and other circumstances and details of life, they are a means to an end, but they are not the end. They're not the goal. They are a matter of course. While you, on your course, are headed to the goal for which you have been set apart. Food and drink. Oh, yeah. Play on words here. Food and drink are not the search objects, so don't go meteoric. The term is meteorizo. And uh, meteorizomai in the middle voice. Uh, Meteorizomai, number 3349. Don't don't get up in the air. Up in the air. Verse 29. Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep on Worrying, And here it's not the merimanao, here it is the meteorizomai. And what happens when you disobey the merimanao imperative, it just gets worse. Because anxiety feeds on itself. And when you dwell on it, it grows. And it gets bigger. And now you've got more things to dwell on. And now you've got more things to be anxious over. And because you've been feeding that beast, it's now bigger. See? Kind of hoping that <laughs> the picket's just got a new puppy. I was going to tease Pam about it because it's cute when it's little. But when you keep feeding the beast, it gets bigger. Right? Well, that's what anxiety is. You keep feeding that beast and it gets bigger. And then you go from Merimanao to Meteorizomai where we get our term meteorology, and it's, um, it, it really is this uh, horrible, horrible fear that uh, it's, it's uh, literally up in the air, but it's, it's about to drop. It is absolutely about to drop. It is, uh, we have similar idioms in English about up in the air is an idiom, but waiting for the other shoe to drop is an idiom, and... and uh, uh, we're juggling so many things that we're gonna, that something's bound to, to slip. And this idea that it's just so fragile, and if it drops, we can't let it drop. We've got to catch it before it drops, see. And that's the, 
the tension that's in view in this kind of worry is that it is up in the air and it's fallen fast. We've got to catch it. All right, they're not the search objects. That's not what we are dedicating our lives to. We have the principle of it here. Point D, what are we searching? What are the Gentiles searching? What are unbelievers searching? See, the, the Gentiles of the earth, the nations of the earth, eagerly seek these things. What are we seeking? Apart from a relate, this is point D in the outline. Apart from a relationship with God, I think represented here in this verse by the, the Gentiles. All these things the nations or the Gentiles of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. Apart from a relationship with God, temporal life provision is a very real endeavor. It is a very real endeavor. Unbelievers get wrapped up about uh, the money they make and, and how they can stretch it, how they stretch the food budget, how they stretch uh, other things. It's a very real endeavor. For those with a relationship with God, the real seeking takes place in spiritual life. The real seeking takes place in spiritual life. Temporal life becomes a matter of course. It's what you're doing along the way. Let me read it out for the sake of those listening on MP3. This is subpoint D. Apart from a relationship with God, temporal life provision is a very real endeavor. For those with a relationship with God, the real seeking takes place in spiritual life. That's verses 30 through 31. Temporal life becomes a matter of course. God knows you need Him. Seek first His kingdom. And Matthew even goes on to say His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. The item you're seeking is God's kingdom. You're seeking His will. You're seeking your spiritual life. You're seeking His spiritual life. See? And so, uh, do you think of yourself as a... uh, uh, And this is hard for a man. This is is hard because men are focused on work. They're focused on career. They're focused on... on, uh, on, uh, You know, what they're making. How they're providing for their family. They... Uh, you know, view themselves biblically in their role in terms of being a provider. But they have to realize that they're, they're a reflection in their marriage and in their families of God. God's the provider. And that, and that if a man does truly provide, what he's doing is he is reflecting what the Father is providing. And he can relax. And he can let the Father work through him. But he has to decide. Uh, is, uh, you know, pick a career. I used to be a police officer so think about a christian police officer what does he view himself as is he a police officer that goes to church in other words does he think of himself first and foremost as a police officer who also happens to have a spiritual life or spirituality or is he a believer in jesus christ first and foremost that's his identity and then oh yes also he works law enforcement and temporal life. See, you see, when you put the emphasis on the right syllable, how it makes that difference? All right. You know, um, and, and for pastors, maybe it's, it's a bad illustration because oftentimes pastors are also supported in the ministry. But any believer can draw on that. Say, your gift is teacher, your gift is helper, your gift is, uh, or your office is deacon, or what have you. Does spiritual life come first, or does temporal life come first? And is your secular career just simply something that you're, think of it as your, your, uh, your moonlighting, right? Approach this from another way. Um, when I went to Kiev last month, went to Ukraine, I, I, um, I did not seek employment in Kiev. I did not uh, search the one as to find out who was hiring. I didn't uh, 
uh, pound the streets looking for a job. I didn't, uh, because I was an alien, a stranger. All right? And I was only there for two weeks anyway. And uh, the provision was there from outside the country. Right? Is this illustration making some sense? And so I had uh, no compelling need to, to earn grievances through Ukrainian employment. All right. Now, the illustration breaks down a little bit because obviously in comparing spiritual to the temporal, uh, I can't take gold, silver, and precious stones out of my heavenly deposits and uh, expect that uh, H-E-B will, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm in the checkout lane at H-E-B and they, they, uh, they ring up my order. Um, they're they're going to want U.S. currency, all right? I can tell them all about my treasure laid up in heaven and they're not really going to be interested in that. So, okay, the, the illustration is not exactly on, but it, it does... Uh, teach that this earth is simply our pilgrimage. It's only a short time. It's only a short time. And to be all worked up about um, temporal life to the sacrifice of spiritual life is a mistake because it puts the cart before the horse. It puts the wrong item in the forefront of our thinking. And so uh, it's not what we're seeking it's not what we're seeking. It's it's uh, it's a long it's a matter of course, something that we uh, obtain along the way. But we're not here to make money. We're here to testify to the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. We're ambassadors. We're priests. We're soldiers. And all of our church age function is focused on our spiritual application. Whatever we do in temporal life, whatever we do in temporal life, you realize that. If you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're a, what a colonel used to say, you're an Indian chief, right, ditch digger, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it's not, it's a non-essential issue. Uh, he'll put you where he needs you, where he wants you. In any event, that's what we look at in, in terms of this. Point E. God the Father's decision to provide the kingdom is a good pleasure choice. Did you notice that in verse 32? Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly. Your Father has well chosen. Your Father has good pleasure chosen to give you the kingdom. Now, of course, this is Christ speaking to a Jewish context and audience in His dispensation, but we still can make our own applications to this. God the Father's decision to provide the kingdom is a good pleasure choice. And vocabulary you want to be aware of is the, is the verb eutikao, 2106, and the noun eutikia, 2107. Dakeo is a thinking word and you is the prefix that means good or well. Eutikao is the verb. Eudikia is the noun. Good pleasure. Good pleasure. Good choices. Appreciate the fact that God always makes good choices. Everything He chooses is consistent with His good pleasure. And they're essential concepts for believers to embrace. Because ultimately, why are we here? We're here to glorify Jesus Christ and by so doing to be well-pleasing to God the Father. If you glorify Christ in your Christian walk, you will please the Father. If you diminish from Christ's glory by glorifying yourself or pursuing carnality or uh, you know, selfish living or anything you're doing to diminish the glory of Christ, does not please the Father. Because He has had one purpose from eternity past to eternity future and every day in between, and that is the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ. All things were created for Him and, or through Him and for Him, we understand. So let me give you a quick uh, 600 passages here that we can look at uh, with respect to good pleasure. And they should be very familiar to you. And if we don't uh, get through them all today, then we can get to some of them next week. But 
Um, you know, Matthew 3.17. This is my behold. My, well, let's look at them very quickly. Oh, otherwise I'll quit. I'll uh, misquote them. A voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am, what? Well pleased. Now, He's the prototype of our Christian walk. He's the example. Each one of us ought to be striving for this. Each one of us wants to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and hear, Well done, good and faithful servant, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again in 11.26. He actually says, makes this statement three different times. But now Jesus in his prayers is praising the Father. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. We need to grow up in our prayer life and start to adjust to what the Father's plan is all about and give him the praise and glory for having such a well-pleasing plan and what he's achieving Jesus Christ was able to fellowship in the wisdom of the Father's plan. That's certainly a lot more mature prayer life than grumbling about uh, (laughs) what you think is the deficiency in the Father's plan. How about celebrating what's the wisdom of the Father's plan being well-pleasing in your sight? And if something awful happens, praise Him. Say, Father, it's well-pleasing in your sight to give me this uh, cancer. Well-pleasing in your sight to give me this current struggle. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And it will work together for good. I may not like it right now, but I'm going to learn some lessons in this. And Christ will be glorified in this. You're praying for a little two-year-old boy or a little boy that's dying and what's going to happen because of that, through that? It was well-pleasing in the Father's sight. In any event, chapter 12, verse 32 I think that's or twelve eighteen. I'm sorry, I looked at the wrong one. Twelve eighteen. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. This, of course, is a quote that goes back to Isaiah, but reference there being Jesus Christ. Matthew seventeen five. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, "This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased." Listen to him. The baptism of the River Jordan, the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, and then a third time um, where the Father three times testified to the identity of His Son as the Chosen One, Beloved as the Christ. All right, uh, Mark 1.11 is uh, parallel to one we've already seen, pretty sure. Yeah. In terms of the baptism of the River Jordan, Luke 2:14, Luke 3:22, Luke 10:21, Luke 12:32, all in the Gospel of Luke. I think um, the good pleasure of the Lord is seen in a couple of different applications in um, the uh, angelic song. When they sing this, uh, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. There's an interesting application on that, a text criticism exercise on that. But uh, when we sing goodwill to all men, the hymn is not very text critical. Chapter 3 and verse 22 Go ahead and get through the Gospels because a lot of these are fairly redundant. Um, Romans 10.1. Romans 10.1. The good pleasure of God the Father. What happens when we become more and more Christ-like in our thinking, when the Word of God renews us, when we become transformed, we start finding that God's good pleasure becomes our good pleasure. And Paul reflects this in his own thinking when he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Heart's desire, good pleasure, good will. Is your good pleasure consistent with God's good pleasure? 
chapter 15. Because if it's not, you've got a problem. <laughs> if things you take pleasure in are not the things God takes pleasure in, then why is that? I think you can answer that. Um, here's an interesting expression. In Romans 15, 26 and 27, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, for they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them also material things. Anyway, what's interesting is Paul writes about this to the Romans, but this is exactly what we're studying in Corinthians. The, the whole principle of grace giving and that's going to come up in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 and the, uh, the relief funds are going to go to Jerusalem, the, the um, charity thesaurus that they've been preparing for the, for the saints in Jerusalem. And uh, this wasn't an act of giving that they had to be uh, coerced. They weren't uh, twisting their arm to get this money out of them. They were well pleased to do this. This was well-pleasing in their sight. They were, their thinking was adjusted to God's thinking. And so they were well-pleased to be grace-oriented in the realm of finances. All right, 1 Corinthians one twenty-one. So hopefully now, what have you seen? You've seen the Father has a well-pleasing attitude. Christ has a well-pleasing attitude, and in his prayers he focused on the Father's well-pleasing attitude. But then now we've also observed that believers can have a well-pleasing attitude. Thinking, that is, according to God's good pleasure. 1 Corinthians one twenty-one. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well-pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God's good pleasure includes faithful Bible teachers teaching the Word of God to a lost and dying world. God's good pleasure is delighted, well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God is well pleased when an evangelist in a guitar room <laughs> proclaims to the glory of Jesus Christ. God's well pleased. Why? Because it's a part of His eternal plan to glorify His Son from Alpha to Omega. All of this is very consistent. Over to chapter 10. The Exodus generation. Uh-oh. He redeemed them all. Got them out of bondage. Got them out of Egypt. Brought them through the Red Sea. Redeemed every single one of them. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness only Caleb and Joshua made it through 40 years later into the land of promise well pleased well pleased how many believers the judgment seat of Christ will receive that accolade well done good and faithful servant behold my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased with most of them God was not well pleased what is the trend in the Christian way of life. Let's grab the Second Corinthians one, Second Corinthians five eight and twelve ten. I'm hoping that these concepts on good pleasure will help us to put into focus the the priority between our spiritual life and our temporal life, because. When you get wrapped up in temporal life, that means you're wrapped up on the wrong good pleasure. Trying to pre please your wife, please your family, please your boss, please the world, please man. When you're focused on the Father's good pleasure, everything comes back into focus. Oh, that's right. Spiritual life comes first. Accomplish what it is I'm sent to do. So 2 Corinthians 5.8. Uh, part of walking by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer good thinking. Well, It is well-pleasing to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Heaven is well-pleasing. If you're walking by faith and not by sight, then physical death won't scare you. 
because glory is well-pleasing. 2 Corinthians 12.10 His rebuke comes after He asks three times for this thorn in the flesh to go away. Three times Paul allows himself to uh, grumble, gripe, moan, and complain and, and pray about his take this thing away from me prayer. It's not the will of God. So he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. In other words, stop asking to take your problems away. That is an immature and quite often carnal prayer. Because God assigned your circumstances. He assigned your test. He assigned it to you. And so when you say, oh, well, I don't like it, make it stop. What are you saying? That's right. I disagree with your plan. Your wisdom called for this. My, your good pleasure called for this. My good pleasure says I don't like it. All right. We've got to get to that point where we can be like Jesus Christ and say, not our will, but thine be done. And so this rebuke, my grace is sufficient for you, power is perfected in weakness, reminds Paul that the, there's a purpose for this thorn in the flesh. And grace will see him through it. This, by the way, is coming to the fellow that uh, <laughs> not a few months prior had uh, uh, written a little something down on some paper that said, uh, God is faithful and will not allow you to be tested beyond that which you're able to bear. Right? And then he sends that off to a group there in Corinth and then starts moaning about this thorn in the flesh thing and starts praying, take this away, take this away, take this away. So the human author of 1 Corinthians 10.13 now gets rebuked because he's not practicing what he preached. So, once he gets this rebuke, he says, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. Here's your well-pleasing, your eudicao. Well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And so then you stop grumbling over the test you're faced with and you start thanking them, saying, okay, another opportunity to magnify your grace, another opportunity to receive your empowerment, another opportunity to glorify Christ. Well, there's more. Um, and we got through about half the list. The um, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up. It won't take long. We'll wrap this up. Let's look at a couple more. Galatians 1.15. Last week I had a hurry with an appointment. but And I had one originally for today, but I got rescheduled for tomorrow. So, Galatians. Nevertheless, I uh, do believe in punctuality. It's a part of all things being done properly and in order. Paul's uh, gospel testimony here uh, and talking about his former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Realize he persecuted Christians. He put them to death. And it was a resume enhancement for him. I hope we understand that uh, we've got dark days in, ahead of us in this country where opposing the name of Christ will be a resume enhancement to those that are involved in it. But when God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was well pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles... And we think about this and we think, well, goodness, why was God so slow? Man, God blew it, that one. God should have gotten Paul saved a lot earlier. And a few of those Christians wouldn't have been murdered the way they were. No, wasn't too early, wasn't too late. God was well pleased. The time was ripe.
Every last detail. Every last detail. Part of his plan. All right. We'll pick this up again next week because uh, we're just now getting to the meat of the church age application in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So we'll come back to this next week to remind ourselves that if we are focused on the Father's good pleasure, it's not going to be pursuing our secular career. It's going to be pursuing spiritual life, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Temporal life will be a part of that. We're not trying to tell anyone to neglect their career. You know, and that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater and going to the extreme the other direction. Saying, well, I'm, I can be a slug at work because I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. No, no, no. <laughs> seeking his kingdom means you're fulfilling your ambassadorship function and your ambassadorship function uh, will take place there at work, won't it? Don't be a slug, but just understand you're not there for the paycheck. You're there as a venue of your ambassador function. We'll have more to say on that next week. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word, for your patience in teaching us and bringing us along a little bit here, a little bit there, line upon line, precept upon precept. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.